Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 10th, 2009, and my guest is Mark Halperin, the great novelist and author of the nonfiction book, Digital Barbarism, A Writer's Manifesto. Mr. Halperin, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Um, I'd like to point out right off the bat that A Writer's Manifesto is not really part of my title. It's the kind of thing that the publishers put on a book, you know, such as... um, uh, a, a love among the the, the uh, palm trees. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a descriptive thing that's on the cover. That's all. Uh, it's a defense of copyright and much much more. Talk about your article in the New York Times and how that led to this book. I I, I was um, for many years uh, the New York Times has been uh, not happy with me for various reasons which are irrelevant here. It's been about twenty five years. I was there darling for uh, 10 or 15 years, but 10 years before that or more, and then uh, it switched the other way. And um, about a couple of years ago, the op-ed page called me up and said, we'd like you to write an article for us, which I thought was very nice. I'm always willing to uh, make peace with people. So I said, lovely, I'll do it. And I thought to myself, well, to be you know, a diplomatic, as I'm usually not, what I'll do is I'll choose a topic which is entirely inoffensive. And what can, what, can I, what can I possibly write about that would not offend anybody? And I thought, well, what about copyright? Nobody cares about copyright except Hollywood lawyers, and they're not even human, and so it doesn't matter what they think. So I wrote uh, an article about copyright in which I aired a few things that I had been thinking since I first had my first copyright, which was way back in the in the uh, in the sixties. And uh, the the article, the Times then titled the article, "A Great Idea uh, Lasts Forever. Why Shouldn't It's Copyright?" Well, of course, I know very well that you can't copyright ideas, although a lot of people don't know that. And I was never in favor, neither in this uh, that article that I wrote, nor prior to that, nor subsequently, of a, uh, a perpetual copyright. Or even, as Mark Twain uh, did, uh, with tongue-in-cheek, a copyright of a million years. So uh, the title was read by the type of person who doesn't read the article, and it spread like poison ivy, uh, but quicker, on the Internet, and people reacted to the title and attacked me in the internet way that they have, which is very uh, uncivil to say the least. And one thing built upon the other until I became the villain of the people who essentially want to abolish copyright because I had dared say the copyright should be, when I did say, should be extended. I had in mind maybe 10 or 20 years. The last time copyright was extended, it was extended for 20 years. And uh, I thought, well, perhaps another 20, because after all, people live longer, and there are, there are also needs, which we can talk about later, for why it should be extended and strengthened. In fact, that's the, the strengthening of copyright and the extension of it has been the pattern since its original inception, uh, uh, particularly in Europe, but uh, elsewhere uh, throughout the world, copyright tends to get the protections are extended. They get longer and longer, and the, the the mechanisms of protecting copyright have become stronger and stronger. This is part of the uh, onward march of civilization. This offended the, the people uh, of the um, uh, Creative Commons uh, school who have been brought up to believe that copyright is actually an inhibition to the creation of, of uh, art or anything worthwhile, that it's a monopoly and that it's a tax. Uh, that it's uh, uh, not a zero-sum game, et cetera, et cetera. And they, um, they made a cause celebre of it. And then I, I um, uh, may I t- depart for a second into a parenthesis? Sure. Um, there was a famous Texas Ranger whose name was Frank Parker. And he was in many, many, many gunfights, you know, something like uh, 40 or something. Uh, and he actually uh, won all of them, which meant that the other person was dead. 
And the the technique that he had was, <clears throat> and it's a very hard technique to to copy in any form, was rather than uh, immediately pulling out his pistol and, and firing, which is what the bad guys did, he waited until he had a very clear, precisely aimed shot. <clears throat> they usually had a couple of shots, but the, the shots missed. And then he very carefully took his shot, fired, and that was that. So rather than respond on the Internet, which was, I thought was purposeless, I, I very patiently uh, wrote a book. And it took two years before it actually came out after the attack. And I'm sure that all those people didn't think that they would ever hear from me again. And then the, uh, the book came out, and it was my answer to all this nonsense. Now, when you're talking about copyright, uh, you're not talking about patents. No. Uh, Different and, animal. And you're particularly focused on copyright for literary works, which is what you care the most about, I, I assume. Uh, yes, I, I am focused on that because I know more about that than, than other you know, than music or um, or art or photography or architecture or other things that are subject to copyright protection. I've worked in this field since I was a, a, really a child, since the, since the 50s. So I have some experience, just practical experience, in, in, in copyright and have thought about it a little bit, so that's why I concentrated upon it. But I also mean to, to uh, extend the, uh, the, my purview to all forms of copyright, although not patents, because patents are really an entirely different creature. Now, you make a moral and practical case for the extension of copyright. And, of course, there's a wide range of views about how long it should be, whether it should exist at all, what form it should take. But I'd like you to lay out the moral particularly and the practical case that you make, because a lot of people argue, certainly on the practical side, that an extension of the length isn't necessary because the present value of, of future benefits to the author so many years in the future is so small that, th that it's not practically significant. You disagree with that, and you also make a moral case. So lay those out, please. Okay. Well, I, I disagree about the, the present uh, – I disagree with the present value argument. This is, argument was first put forth by Macaulay in his famous speech to the House of Commons in 1841, in which he was, he was um, uh, speaking against a copyright bill that would have brought an extension for the first time in, in modern history after the author's death. Usually it had copyrighted closed down upon the death of the author. And he said, he was speaking about his example, famous example, which is repeated ad nauseum by the, by the, the people on the other side of this debate from me, uh, his example was Samuel Johnson. He said, you know, he said Samuel Johnson would have preferred a shin of beef, um, a, you know, a plate of shin of beef, actually, to, you know, some meat chopped up in an underground shop rather than, uh, uh, rather than the extension of his copyright after his death because what possible good could it have done him? And, and it would not have, Macaulay said, it wouldn't have moved him to write a single more essay, one more essay, or one more poem, or one more uh, uh, to produce one more bon mot, because it, it meant nothing. And in fact, that's the present value uh, argument. But that's absolutely untrue. I know it's untrue. Well, I know it's untrue from looking at history, and I know it's untrue from my own experience. And why is this so? This is so because everyone who works in life works, uh, and particularly when you get past a certain age and you have children. You, you are concerned with not with what you yourself enjoy, but what with the people who follow you will 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 enjoy. You, this is why inheritance has been something which has been uh, recognizable in every civilization uh, throughout the history of the world, across all uh, boundaries of culture and everything, uh, because we are concerned with leaving to our children and to our grandchildren, and if you're an English aristocrat, to your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, as far as you can extend it, your lands, your wealth, your money, your house, uh, whatever it is that you produce. Uh, in addition, there's, there's more than just that. There's the question of uh, future benefits to, for people who are not even related to you whatsoever. Uh, Macaulay said that people don't care about what happens after they die and they don't take steps to do anything to to ensure that to ensure that that um, what they do has a, a, a to make a legacy but that's not true you can use an example of for instance someone who 
who is very assiduous about uh, reducing what he calls his carbon footprint for the benefit of people whom he doesn't know, uh, who will come very far in the future, and who won't know that he did it. Um, people do look beyond their own deaths for for uh, benefit, and it's not just monetary. But anyway, if you look at the, at, at, I work my whole life. Uh, I have now, I don't know, certainly more than 600 copyrighted publications, and there are hundreds which are pirated, actually, you know, stolen in China and elsewhere. But at, at least 600 protected by copyrights. This is my, this is my legacy. I, I, I do have money that I will leave to my children, uh, which will be taken by the state, and the value of the copyrights will also be taxed when, 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 I, when I leave them. But I spent my whole life working for copyrights, you know, building a, 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 an oeuvre of copyrights. Someone else might have spent his life making a flour mill or a business or a car dealership or whatever. He can leave that to his children. I would like to leave what I spent my life working to my children and possibly to my grandchildren. But there's a difference between a flour mill or a car dealership or a hotel or any kind of business, even, for instance, Google, which is a business that can be left in shares of it or ownership in perpetuity to people. And and what I do, because uh, 70 years after my death, my, everything that I have built will then be, the, 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 the government protection of it, the legal protections of it, will be removed. And it will not be subject to the control or ownership of my heirs. And that, that difference is why, now I'm not saying that that there should be perpetual copyright, which would put copyright in the same category as real property. Uh, I don't say that. Why? Because the, in the, the, this debate was was had uh, in the at the time of the founding, and the founders said, for the for the benefit of the public, intellectual works cannot be locked up forever. So we will give copyright protection in order to stimulate them, which is what Queen Anne said when she made the first copyright bill for a limited time. This limited time uh, it, it makes sense. There, there is a balance between the, the, the need for the public to have things freely and the, and the rights of the, of the creator, although it doesn't exist for, for other material things, but, but intellectual property is different. I'm not saying that, that it should be perpetual, but I am saying that it should be at least what it is and not reduced as the opponents of copyright want it to be, some of them even to nothing. And I'm saying it should even be extended, because there are very good reasons for that. Well, Would you like to know one reason for it? Yeah, go ahead. Of, of many. Uh, if, if a copyright is extended, and if you, ha- if you, if you know that you or your heirs will, will be um, <clears throat> able to benefit from what you do in the long term, in the longer term anyway, comparatively, then you will be less subject to thinking about everything that's au courant, you'll say, well, I want this to be lasting. I'll look beyond the current horizon, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and I'll make something of value that's lasting. And it will give you, it will give the person who thinks this way, the courage and incentive not just to flow on the currents of fashion. That's just one of many reasons. Well, let's put the Constitution to the side for a moment because you really highlight what I think is some of the confusion <clears throat> about the incentive effects of copyright and, and make some separate points that, that are not often uh, heard. One of those is control over the, the work of art itself. So the standard argument is, well, copyright gives you total control during the term of copyright, and once that's relaxed, then competitors can print your work and profit from it uh, without your control, and the standard view of that is, well, that's good uh, because there's going to be competition that will lower the price, and so we're going to balance, as we do with patents, we're going to balance the monopoly part uh, with the uh, opportunity to spread the work more widely. But as you point out, the royalty part of a book is surprisingly small. Most people, I think, are very unaware of that. They think that the author makes, oh, at least half of the cover price when it, when in fact it's it's a very small amount. So the the fact that say uh, Shakespeare isn't under copyright, if Shakespeare's heirs and you use this example in the book, if Shakespeare's heirs were were, were still receiving it, it wouldn't really jack up the price 
uh, very much, and it would still be limited, as you point out, by by the demand curve. But what the point that I think is more important that you stress so eloquently in the book, and I'd like you to talk about, is the the control over the work itself, because a lot of the uh, appeal of reducing copyright, I think, for its proponents of, of that of that movement, is this idea that that ideas should be allowed to to ferment together and complement each other and this idea of remixing and altering and 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 parody that would or satire or et cetera, reimagining you might call it. And you speak very eloquently against that. Why is that? Well, first let's take these things one at a time. First of all, copyright doesn't it hardly gives you absolute control. For instance, you just mentioned parody. You, one is free to do a parody of a work very closely um, based upon it using the, the uh, even the same type you can't copyright any title you know I, you can write I can write a book called what's a I don't know what a big best-selling book is now let's say uh, um, uh, I, I, I really don't know because I don't keep up with that but if someone writes a book called uh, the piano you can write a book called the piano you can't copyright a title you can't copyright a plot you can't copyright, um, uh, let's say, uh, and I, of course, an idea, uh, a process, a concept, or whatever. Those things are not subject to copyright. Anyone can take, use, um, build upon, repeat those things: ideas, concepts, processes, uh, title, plot, etc. Obviously, it would have to be that way because there are only about essentially a hundred basic plots in the world, and you can use them as you wish. So those things are hardly locked up. Parody is is possible. Uh, you can parody a book, and it's not protected under copyright. That was specifically um, in in law exempted from copyright. Uh, my, my in the law, it says that um, um, everything I write, everything anyone writes, can be used by the blind um, in 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 Braille or in recorded editions if it's done for the blind and, and marketed through channels to the blind. And the, the no no royalties need be paid. It's not. It's the, I suppose the form is protected under copyright, but there but there's no monetary protection. Uh, and by the way, as I point out in the book, um, the Congress has done this vis-a-vis uh, -vis the blind and people who write books. But at the same time, the, if a blind person goes to his uh, ophthalmologist, he's charged. That's not mandated for free. Yeah. And. Uh, and also, a good thing too. <laughs> yeah. And the government even finds ways to tax blind people and taxes them uh, fully. Uh, it gives them a certain exemption, but it uh, taxes them otherwise. Whereas it has decreed that my work goes to the blind for free, which I think is fine. It's I lovely, but it anyway. it's not a voluntary transaction. Right. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, I would, but and I don't object. But the, just to show you the difference in how things yeah. are treated, um, as far as. When you mentioned the royalties, I have um, there are two books of mine which are uh, hardcover books. One is Winter's Tale, the other is The Soldier of the Great War. They've been in print for more than 25 years in in hardcover. They're they're certainly in print in paperback, but they were in hardcover print for 25 years. With the new pressures on publishers, the publisher went to what's called for these two books in hard in their hardcover versions, they went to what's called print on demand. If you buy Winter's Tale or A Soldier of the Great War in hardcover from a bookstore or online, uh, you will pay $40 for that book. I get 30 cents, you see, which is uh, really a very, very small uh, portion of it. And it's not going to affect the, the competitiveness uh, of one book as opposed to the other. In normal transactions, for a paperback, uh, the, the normal royalty is for, to the author is seven and a half percent, and with that seven and a half percent, there's a lot of um, uh, elasticity in the uh, in what can be done uh, on the retail end, on the you know on, on the selling end uh, by the publisher, etc. The competition comes not from the re simply a reduction of price motivated by well, reduction of price because you can exclude the author's royalties, which is only for paperback, 7.5%. For most books, hardcover, it's 10%. If you're established, you get 15% of the retail price. Uh, it hardly matters. And, it, and I'd like to address another thing that you mentioned, which is the, the, the characterization of 
literary copyright as a monopoly. It is not a monopoly in any sense of the word, any more than you would have a monopoly over selling a cabbage that you grew in your garden. To be a monopoly, it would have to be a monopoly over books. That would then exclude competition. But you don't have, if I write a book, if I write 10 books or 12, as I have, and they're for sale in a bookstore, I don't have a monopoly because there are literally millions of other books that my book has to compete with. Therefore, the, I can't control, I can't put a freeze on the price. I have to compete with those other books. People go into a bookstore, and if, if let's say, if I had a monopoly, I could charge um, $500 for a paperback copy of my book or, or some outrageously high price, other high price. But I don't because someone would look at it and say, I'm not going to pay $100 for this paperback when, I, when there are a million other paperbacks when I can get for, that I can get for $15. There is no monopoly. That's a totally false uh, claim. But to return to the, the heart of your question, which is more important, really, than any of the uh, – forgive me, I know this is an economic show – than any of the economic arguments. Now, those are just the financial arguments. Those are the – exactly. The economic so, arguments go much broader. Go ahead. Okay. Um, to, but to return to the – the deeper argument, anyway, whatever it may be, um, the, the question of control of the work is very, very important. Uh, it, it's authorial right or authorial control. And by the way, all the the uh, sort of semi-socialist states in Europe that the people who are against copyright here admire uh, have, have understood this, and they have stronger copyright protections and stronger you know, droit d'auteur right of the author, much, much more than, than, than we have. But the, here's, the, here's the point about that. If, if you don't have control of what you write, then it can be changed. And that is the most uh, dreadful thing. It's a nightmare. It's like 1984. Whoever has the ability to reproduce what you've written can change it as he wishes. If you don't have control, which is guaranteed by and backed by by law and by penalty if someone tries to alter it. Uh, imagine a world in which anyone can attribute anything to anybody. That's In a way, that's the Internet world in which that happens. But I, I value much more than, than any money my, my ability to, to say something and to keep it what it is rather than have someone else misrepresent it or you know, are presented in a different way as something that I have said. This is what these people don't understand whatsoever. That has further implications, if I may go into them. Uh, may I? Sure. Okay. Uh, originally, originally we, there was in Western civilization uh, a corporate institutional model of culture, by which I mean that culture was dependent upon monasteries, the church, and the state. Uh, you know, you had monks copying manuscripts in, in monasteries, and you had you had to apply to the later on to the to the king to get a license to uh, to to actually produce well, actually to print something. But this is this is my point. The printing press allowed a shift to the individual voice. Instead of monks copying manuscripts, private persons could support themselves by selling the mass renderings of their work produced by the printing press. Uh, and, when, and when they did, they discovered rather quickly that someone else could print it too, and that therefore they could no longer uh, make a living that way, and therefore uh, it would have reverted, the, the cultural model would have reverted back to the institutional model where the only way you could sit and write something was because you had a living provided by the monastery or by the church or by the state. So what happened was, uh, largely Queen Anne, uh, and of course her advisors, and, and there had been pressure previous to that, a wonderful law made by Queen Anne, which said we recognize that if we don't protect the, 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 the um, uh, production of, of, of literary works and other such works, then people won't be able to make a living, and they won't be, we won't get these works. So they, the first Copyright Act came about. Uh, it protected incentive, and in doing so, it moved 
the cultural model from that of one in which you had overseers. Uh, in other words, you were working for somebody. That's the only way you could you could express yourself, really, to one in which the individual voice uh, was 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 the um, <clears throat> was the master of civilization. And that's magnificent. That that essentially was one of the great pillars of of democracy. But it depends upon protection of that voice and protection of incentive. Digitalization. The kind that allows, you know, suddenly we have this power that allows instantaneous replication at virtually no cost, threatens to move us back to the previous model, both cultural and political. I want to challenge that for a minute. Can I finish? Yeah, go ahead. Back to the corporate institutional model where every writer will have to be somebody's employee. You know, you have overseers of every type. Um, for instance, if you're in the academic world, you might say, well, I have academic freedom. I can write anything I want. Well, yes, you do. But to get tenure, you have to have a certain, you have to uh, walk down certain channels. Yeah. You have to pass through various filters in order to get to the point where you're free to do anything you want. And it's, so you're, you're, in a sense, one is not free, really, unless you're a certain, uh, unless you've passed certain tests. I'm saying that, that we shouldn't even have those tests uh, as a universal throughout society, that all voices should be able to to express themselves and be rewarded for it and not just institutionally. Well, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I, I want to go back, though, to the, uh, the authorial control issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it strikes me, although I understand your concern about it, uh, and, and maybe things have changed, but it strikes me that, that there are inherent restraints on that process that might harm authorial control in the, in the following sense. It's true that because Julius Caesar is no longer under copyright, that someone is now free to create a version of Julius Caesar with a different ending and violate Shakespeare's vision of, of the political struggles that he talks about in the play. But people don't want to read that. Um, they certainly don't want to read it under William Shakespeare's name. Uh, it would people would find out it was not William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar; it was so and so's Julius Caesar. So I wonder how much that issue is of control. I, this this sort of remix concept that people um, romanticize. I wonder how much that would actually happen in the uh, in the real world in the absence of copyright, because we have lots of examples. There are no there are no versions of Oliver Twist where he. Uh, the ending turns out differently. There are no versions of, of many, many things that are out of copyright. People want to read the original. Well, you are, okay. But the, part of the reason is that Shakespeare has had uh, 400 years in which uh, the, the imprimatur has been set. You know, the, the, the impression has been made. And Shakespeare, of course, is a very unusual case because Shakespeare is essentially you know, the meter stick of the English language. With other things that are not so deeply set and that are more and that are more current, uh, you might have a, 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 a change in a difference. And, and there's another thing. For instance, I, I have two examples to uh, to present to you in this in this um, regard. One is that once uh, I, when I was younger, I used to write speeches for politicians, always from deep anonymity. Uh, always without any compensation whatsoever. I never took a penny. Uh, and I never wrote a speech that uh, was not to express a policy that I myself had formulated. Only on two occasions in a, very, in a long career, I've since stopped, but only on two occasions uh, was was I uh, outed as the writer of the speech. And then Bob Dole did that for, I remember. for two speeches. Yeah. I remember. Otherwise, they were all from deep anonymity and the politicians respected what that and, and I was never I was never identified uh, once uh, I submitted a speech uh, to the White House and they said oh this is great you know we love it we're going to take parts of it and we're going to use it yeah. and I said you to them no it. you're not <laughs> and they said well, what do you mean <laughs> no, no we're not I said you're not going to touch it not a single word in that speech is going to be changed unless I change it uh, and I'd be happy to to, to uh, work with the president and and make you know because he's giving the speech, but but nobody's going to change this but me, 
And they said, what? You know, because in their mind, I mean, yeah, after yeah. all, the president of the United States and the power of the presidency, is that, and, and I said, yes, because it's copyrighted, which it was, because anything you write is copyrighted when you write it. And they couldn't do anything. You know, there was the, the power of the presidency, and I, and I can tell you that, that uh, high politicians treat speechwriters sort of the way... Um, Sort of the way King Farouk might have have treated a waiter, you know. There's not much respect there. Yeah. Uh, they, they think of them as just prettifiers of of, of what they, of what they say. I was able to say no, you can't touch it because of copyright. That's one thing. Another thing was, and this is this is a, a good example because these days uh, students in schools, starting from a very early age and going all the way th- th- through uh, uh, university, are taught. Well, there's a bias for the collective, and they're taught that uh, writing is a collective um, exercise. My children, when they were when they were young and in school, uh, would come home and tell me that they were they would do group exercises in writing. They have what they call a writing web. They brainstorm for ideas. Then they write things, and they and they each one looks at the others, and they and they it's like a little Soviet, a little factory floor Soviet. The students edit the writings of the other students, and then it's presented to the teacher to edit. So they're taught that this kind of a collective uh, thing that, that, as some people wrote to me after my Times article, they said, um, we have a hive mind, you see. There's this idea that the individual is unimportant. It's a hostility toward individual rights and a bias for the collective. So this has worked its way up through the channels, and now the younger people who are editors and newspapers, magazines, uh, even uh, in, in, in book publishing, believe that it, writing is a collaborative exercise. That's how they've been taught to write. So they change things. It didn't used to be that way. When I first started out at the New Yorker in the, in the 60s, um, no one would dare change a comma without your consent. Now you submit a newspaper piece, and this is a terrible thing. You get something back, and you, sometimes you don't even recognize it. Yeah. And it's very badly written. Um, my first experience with that was in the in the eighties when I submitted a piece to a, a magazine. They paid me for it, uh, and we edited. It. And then the magazine came out. And I looked at it, and it was so badly written that I, you know, I, I have a great deal of shame. I'm a person who feels shame. If I do something that I think is wrong or that reflects badly upon me, I get tortured. I looked at this article. It was so badly written. It was so awful. And it went out under my name. It was, it was horrible. It was a terrible experience. And this is important because the individual is important. And what you say is important. You should be able to fix it. I sued the magazine. They published an apology in the New York Times. They paid my legal fees. They paid me a certain amount of money. And they gave me a lifetime subscription. <laughs> but And that's because of copyright. Otherwise, I have no power. And you, if you write something, the, 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 the publisher, the newspaper, the magazine, the journal would be all powerful. And they could, they could and they, they tend to do this. They want to change what you write. Uh, yes, they do. And that's 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 why uh, it's not just a question of, of uh, you're right. Shakespeare would not be. No one would. I mean, Shakespeare's open would be open to parody even if it were protected by copyright. So you can write a parody, and people do. Look at Monty Python's you know, uh, Shakespeare stuff, or the, the Shakespeare, all of Shakespeare in in half an hour. That's fine. But for other things, uh, the authorial right and control is extremely important. Well, I want to turn to the cultural issues because that they run through the book and, and they're they're very uh, fascinating. Before I do, I want to mention that I <clears throat> encourage people. I'll try to find a link and put it up on the uh, the web on this. But I encourage you to find a link to uh, Bob Dole's acceptance speech uh, that that you wrote uh, when sure. one of the few moments I think in Bob Dole's life where he was lyrical. It was about it lasted about forty five seconds, and it really was. No, 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 you, you got it wrong. I, I wrote the acceptance speech, which is essentially the platform of the Republican Party, which he delivered in August. I wrote it in January. Uh, they monkeyed with it, uh, but what they did not monkey with was Bob Dole's resignation speech. Uh, I was um, more than just instrumental in persuading him to resign from the Senate majority leadership and from the Senate while he was running for president. That's the speech that caught everyone's imagination. 
uh, and it lasted about four or five minutes. But you didn't write the paragraph where he talked about growing up on the prairie? Of course I did. Okay, phew. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was referring But that was in his acceptance speech. Uh, in my memory. Uh, we'll check it out. Uh, well, there was a little bit of that in the acceptance speech, um, and, and but the, the most of that type of stuff was in the resignation speech. Yeah, well, I'll check that one out too, but I, I heard your voice in that other one. Oh, yeah, well, I wrote the other one. Let's turn to the cultural issue. Um, one of the things that's fascinating about the book, people have lots of different opinions about copyright and patents and all these intellectual property issues, and they are, as a friend of mine said, they're hard issues because physical property and intellectual property have something in common, and but they're also something that's different between them. So I think it's hard for people to think about them carefully. So there's different opinions. So you came out and you expressed one opinion. What fascinated me about the book was the realization of how much vehemence there is uh, on the other side, how much anger and bile, and um, and it's um, it, it's a signal. It tells us something about the world, and you make a case in the book for this um, bias towards collaboration, collectivism, the hive mind, etc. Um, there are a lot of good things about collaboration. Uh, we talk a lot on this show about Hayek. And his insights into how people cooperate without knowing that they're cooperating with each other through the price system. And they produce things that have value, that knowledge gets uh, pulled together without anyone's conscious direction. And you could call that hive mind if you want. But I think the people who are calling it hive mind do have something broader than the economic cooperation that is what the marketplace creates that's, that is so glorious. And you worry about that as a uh, a destroyer of creativity and and property down the road. So why are you so worried about that? Why do you and why do you think it's so pervasive that that desire? Well, I, I think it's first of all, I think it's pervasive because I think that what it represents is the the uh, papering over of an incapacity. Uh, in other words, uh, I mean, if you if you actually look at the environment that this comes from, and people who talk about um, uh, hive mind, and it was, someone wrote to me, uh, you know, a, a, essentially a, a crank letter, a poison pen letter, saying um, uh, art is a is a dream of the commons. See, now, now, art, art is not a dream of the of the commons. Uh, cooperation, collaboration, of course, are very important. We couldn't have civilization without it, uh, and and no one person. Can, could could make civilization. We all depend upon what other people do. That's obviously true. But we were made individually, except for Siamese twins. And even they have individual brains and think individually and are different people. And there aren't so many of them. Uh, but we're made individually. And anything that, that of real, real value that comes in an artistic sense comes out of one person, essentially. You know, you can point to virtually any work that's great that is a is a, a cardinal work or a, a seminal work or something which a lasting work, and it comes from essentially one mind, one heart, one soul, influenced by others, of course, uh, drawing upon the culture made over thousands of years by by many, many, many others, but. There, there is no uh, uh, collective in art, and and you can sometimes there are great, uh, you know, wonderful works that are made uh, collaboratively. You know, for example, um, movies are are by necessity a collaboration because of the form. Sometimes even books are written. I mean, I suppose uh, you know, I don't know, Will and Ariel Durant or uh, uh, Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. But the really great works come from from the synthesis that occurs in one mind. Um, and I think that when people write that we're a hive mind or art is a, is a dream of the commons, what they're doing really is, is I see it as a kind of a, a confession that they can't do it. And therefore, they don't. They, they want to make the world such that that other people can't do it as readily, and they're not in, they're not uh, willing to extend recognition or protection to those people who can. I, th I think of music as an example. Uh, yes, you have an, an orchestra. You know, you couldn't have um, 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 Mozart's uh, uh, second piano concerto unless you, or twenty-first, that's my favorite, uh, unless you had uh, a uh, an orchestra. But on the other hand, uh, it came from Mozart, from 
from his from this one little guy, um, and or even in playing music, you you can have uh, Alfred Brendel playing the piano, and that's just magnificent. And it's 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 beyond beautiful. It's 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 wondrous. But you 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 can't. And you could have, I suppose, Ferrante and Teicher sitting together mm-hmm. playing two pianos, but it takes the the work and skill of one person. There's no getting around that. And if you try to get around that, what happens is you have nothing, because there is no hive mind, and there 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 is no uh, dream of the of the commons. They don't exist. I just I'm fascinated though by the. Um, I think part of it there is some resentment there, jealousy, envy, whatever you want to call it. Sure. But there's yeah. something also I think that's. Um, I suspect there's other motives tangled up in there as well. I'm thinking of um, the same sort of naive romanticism of you know one government, which that will all work together. It's part of this uh, yeah. recent election that that this idea that somehow that we'd be united, which is a false god. It's a an illusion because we're all different. We have different goals, different aspirations, and. We we can be united in some ways, but we cannot be united in in the ways that people romanticize, and it, it leads to death and tyranny. Of course, it's also <laughs> it's also it's it's yeah it's a nightmare because uh, it, in order to for everyone to be working together for one purpose and one goal, that means that anyone who is different will have to be hammered into the mold. Yeah, uh, it's really strange the way people think that uh, one government is a wonderful thing. These are the same people, the, pe- the people who who believe in world government are also people who, who rightly uh, are most uh, hostile to the idea of empire. Yeah. Well, it's and a irony they're there. both the same. Yeah. Um, the, uh, besides the hammering, there's the desire to hammer, which seems to grow when you are uh, at the top, and people seem to just of like Of course, because you, you want everything. Now, I always, I always thought when, uh, when I was uh, 14 years old, and I and I thought this way. Mm. Uh, let me, if I may, tell you a story. Sure. Uh, I was uh, having, uh, I, actually, it was dinner uh, at the, the the home of Rabbi Siegel in New York. He was the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, uh, and his son was Eric Siegel, who wrote Love Story. So I, I was there at dinner with my classmate from school, who was the cousin of these people. And they lived on 79th Street in a magnificent apartment in one of those uh, old buildings. And at that time, Aristotle Onassis was in town, and he was the the Bill Gates of the time. He, he was probably yep. the richest man in the world. Yep. And I had the idea at age 14 or so that um, I would go to Aristotle Onassis and ask him to donate his money to the United Nations so it could be spread around and everyone would, would be happy. And you know the sick would be cured, and the hungry would be given food, and uh, and, yeah. and the world would be a wonderful place. The redemption, right? <laughs> so uh, this is kind of like the, the what many people now. This is the extent of their their politics and their sophistication at this point. Well, I actually went with my friend, and we went down to the 79th Street Marina, off of which the Christina Onassis's yacht yeah. was anchored, <laughs> and we waited in the garage. Uh, hoping that he would come through, and he did. <laughs> and I and he, would, he had maybe one or two people with him. And I walked up to him and I asked him. I said, "Mr. Onassis, would you would you give your money to the United Nations?" And and he looked at me. You know, I was a kid in a in a blazer, in a prep school blazer. Yeah. And he said, "No." <laughs> and I said, "But but 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 why not?" And he said. Who are you? You know, <laughs> and he got into his car and he drove away. I have to tell you that my prime motivation was that I had visions of myself, like a saint, like Obama, uh, speaking to the United Nations, saying because I was the one who had arranged this, and I was going to be, uh, you know, loved and worshipped because I was giving this money. It was Onassis's money, but he would be just sort of standing on the side. That's how I thought as a crazy 14-year-old adolescent who knew nothing, you see. And that's how people think today. They want everything to work together because they, they think that in that case, everyone will love everybody 
And also, everyone will love them for having this wonderful idea and being so good. Yeah. Uh, part of it also, I think, goes back to a, a concept of high X that we've talked about many times on this show, which is this desire to extend the um, mores and norms of the family to a to society as a whole. And um, right. it's, uh, it has a grip on us that we have trouble shaking off. But I, I want to turn to something, um, another set of ideas in the book. And although the book is about copyright and it's about art, it's, um, th- there's a strong theme in the book of how to live and, and what um, the way one should live. And it reminded me quite a bit, actually, of The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith, a book we've talked about a great deal in a recent series of podcasts. Um, the two ideas that are in the book that I wanted you to talk about in any order you like are the seductiveness of machines and what you call, very beautifully, the acceleration of tranquility. And Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments warns against the false appeal of both gadgetry uh, in 1759. It's quite an achievement. And the material world, uh, ironically, I think the way people view Smith, but he saw both of those as false gods, false roads to serenity and meaning, and yet we are so often uh, find those things appealing machines and the pace of life. And you critique those as well. Uh, Explain why you think it's important first to remember the distinction between humans and machines, which you'd think wouldn't need mentioning, but it does, and why uh, it's leading us to accelerate uh, our tranquility. Well, uh, I um, I think that uh, uh, people generally uh, are cooperative with uh, with influence, if I may put it that way. In other words, when something uh, we're adaptive, and we tend to to shape ourselves to things. After all, that's how we've survived, and that's how how things have um, progressed. And the the world of the machine. Is, is very uh, objectively powerful, more so than are we. And it presents us with one hell of a, uh, a challenge of adaptation because machines are, first of all, they're faster than we are. They're, they're, they have no feeling. They're, they're, they're impervious to certain things. They can do things uh, that are extraordinarily uh, complex that we can't do. I mean, they don't hold a candle to us in terms of ultimate complexity. I mean, if you take the the most um, complex machine that's ever been devised, and you multiply it times ten, it's, it doesn't even—it's not even a, uh, a jot compared to the complexity uh, in terms of, of terms of speed, um, uh, miniaturization, um, uh, and, and pure complexity of a human being. If you go down to the to the chemical and, and um, biochemical uh, structure of a human being, even the mechanical structure of a human being. There's no machine that even even compares to that. But nonetheless, in certain areas, uh, we are far outclassed by machines. And what we do is we try to uh, adapt to them. When at times, most of the time, we shouldn't. Rather, the machine should be, should be adapted to us. And in terms of, uh, I, this is what I call perverse adaptation, when we mold ourselves to the requirements of the machine rather than vice versa. When you see people um, walking down the street looking at those little blackberries and moving their thumbs, being constantly in touch and everything like that, they have molded themselves to the, to the, to the potential of the machine and neglected their, the, um, the rather constant and steady uh, requirements of being a human being. If, because human beings require time for reflection, they require rest. Uh, we, uh, if I may say so, we uh, require uh, stillness and uh, and and the, the the ability to to absorb things rather than just being uh, hooked up to a machine and uh, made into, into bundles of tropisms. And to take, in terms of copyright. Uh, and in terms of, of literary works and how this spreads more into the the, um, the way we live, to take the substance of things, the substance being what really matters, and open it up more and more to rapid transmission, replication, storage, compression, uh, alteration, uh, piecing apart, so as adapt to to adapt it 
to the new capacities of machines is perverse. It's the reverse of what should be done. The machines should adapt to what they serve, not vice versa. They should be made to, to uh, in effect, tiptoe around what is inadequately, uh, very inadequately called content, to treat it with deference and respect, which means not seizing it at will, not replicating it at will, uh, not piecing it apart and reconstructing it at will. Uh, and that, again, is, that's a narrow view of it. That's just as, as it, as it uh, applies to written works, copyright music, w whatever. But in general, uh, we, we have uh, made the machine our master, whereas we should be the masters of the machine. I, for instance, never, ever wanted to be on the Internet. I can do without it, but I have to be on it because everyone else is on it. And this idea that you don't, you can't miss out on what other people are doing, you don't want to be left behind, is, it, it, has, it has its uses. But on the other hand, it can be way overdone, and I think that now we, we're way, way overdoing it. There are people, for instance, in the book I mentioned, I took from a report in the Washington Post, because uh, I wasn't there, of when the new iPhone came out, I don't know, maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, more than a, year, than a year and a half ago, uh, people lined up and stayed overnight yep. in, in, in the heat and the rain for 24 hours or more in line to get the new iPhone. I was in California at the time. I saw it with my own eyes. It was yeah, common. And some of everyone. them said, uh, this is going to be a new paradigm of human existence. Right? It's, it's going to change the gestalt. It's, uh, and when, when, when someone would get, will go into the store, get an iPhone, and walk out with it, and hold it up, and every, everyone would cheer. And then the other thing was that um, uh, th it said that they exchanged uh, uh, Internet addresses. I suppose now it would be Twitter, 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 tweeting addresses. Yeah. And, uh, and so they could talk to each other about their iPhone experiences. This is demeaning to, to human beings, really. Well, I, I think there's something worrisome about it. I, I think it can be... The worries can be overdone, but I, I think there are many glorious things about the internet, uh, the instance of your, the quickness of communication. But I think there's also no doubt that it can be very destructive to the spirit. And um, I, my cell phone does – I don't use it for email, which puts me in a very small group uh, because I found myself checking it all the time and not talking to my wife. She didn't like that and I didn't either, uh, but it's hard to – it has a seductiveness. But I think it also relates to what you observe about education, uh, which we don't have time to go into in depth, but I, it's worth mentioning. Uh, you have some very thoughtful things to say about what I – the distinction I, I call it between information and wisdom. So information has never been more available uh, to a curious person right now. I, I like to think econ talk is part of that, and there are many, many glorious things for a curious person to explore that are very, very accessible compared to previous times in human existence. There's just nothing like it. But we often confuse information with wisdom, and we often confuse the stuffing of facts into a young mind with knowledge. And Certainly. I think part of that comes from your observation. I hadn't thought about it before. Our, our incessant human – maybe it's unavoidable – to see our brains as whatever the most – uh, advanced thing we can create is. So we can create a computer now. So our brains must be, quote, like a computer. And so with a computer, what you do is you stuff it with stuff. You put in code and you put in commands. And I think to a large extent, we're doing, we do that with our children, unfortunately, where we, you know, we stuff them with facts thinking it makes them smart. It doesn't. It just makes their brain crowded. Well, it doesn't help them learn how to think. And you say some very beautiful things about encountering a text and chewing it over, which uh, are being lost. Also, um, we we tend to do things uh, way too fast now, uh, and it's it's sort of like life is not uh, a video game. It's not a, it's not a tennis game either. It, it, people do things now without thinking about them. For instance, the responses to my to my article were instantaneous. Um, and that's that's usually uh, not very good. I mean, it's at times it can serve you, but Generally, it's, it's not a good thing. I just want to say one thing about the, the Internet and everything. One of the common charges that, are, that have been leveled against me is that I'm a Luddite. I'm hardly a Luddite 
you know, I, I studied um, communications theory um, back in the, in the 60s with uh, Professor Boda, who had been the head of the Bell Labs. And I, had, I got my first uh, PC in 1981 and have been dealing with them ever since. Of course, there are magnificent things on the Internet. It's like any power, any power that, that, that any new power that you have, but you have to know how to use it. You have to know how to discipline it. You have to know what not to do with it. Uh, and and then, then, it's, then, it's, then it's wonderful and magnificent. The problem is the abuse of it. The problem is the surrender, complete surrender to it, the, the distortion of it. Uh, I don't, I, I'm anything but a, a Luddite. And by the way, the Luddites were given a very poor rap. Uh, they, were, they were not against machines in general. They were just uh, reacting because their living had been, they were starving to death, uh, and they didn't like looms because looms were putting them out of business. And that's, it's understandable. I mean, they weren't right ultimately, and they, and they couldn't prevail. But uh, they didn't have a general dislike of machines. And by the way, they were severely repressed very, you know, sort of like the Pullman strike. But I, I'm not a Luddite. I never have been. I've always been deeply interested in machines. Winter's Tale is largely, a, a, not largely, but in great part, a meditation about the beauty of machines. Uh, and I've always been involved with them, known how to use them, and had a, a, a bent toward them. Uh, I don't mean to be too defensive. No, but I think it's it's an interesting uh, thing, and I can't uh, I can't help again but note how. Uh, virulent and emotional this issue is to some people as you say when you started this conversation through the new york times you just thought it was an interesting point you'd make it and move on and um you obviously touched a deep nerve uh and as you observe in the book it it tells us um something about the cultural currents uh we don't we're almost out of time i want to ask you about the state of um of writing in america your book moved me many times as your work often does, but it also saddened me. You seem to think that great writing is um, is dying to be replaced by the sensational, the visual, the instant, as you point out, things that are less contemplative. I wonder how much of that worry, which I share some of, uh, though maybe just a short-run phenomenon as our cultural responses to this incredible change uh, in terms of access to information as, as those right. come alive. Or are I, you, I don't. I don't think so. I are think you pessimistic? Yeah, I'm very pessimistic about it. If you look at the, um, I mean, just as a as a, as a uh, an illustrative example, um, um, we live in the country and we sometimes go to Sam's Club to buy stuff. And it used to be just two years ago that while my wife was was going around with a shopping cart buying stuff, I could stay at the uh, at the book aisle. Yeah, they have and a be good occupied. Book aisle. For an hour, because there were some real books there. Yeah. And now the book aisle is now about uh, 25% uh, the extent of what it was two years ago. And all the books are, I, I can't find anything there to look at because it's such incredible junk. And the bestseller lists have shown that. For instance, Random House used to have 12 imprints, now they have three. Uh, my prior publishers, Harcourt and Houghton Mifflin, have both stopped publishing new books. Uh, there's there's far fewer slots in which to fit, and those and the pressure to the, uh, upon the publishers to to uh, go to the lowest common denominator because they have to make money to sell is so tremendous that uh, I believe that my pessimism is justified. I'm sorry to hear that. I I, um, I hope it's otherwise, but uh, you never know. Um, so. Partly in our hands, partly not. Uh, my by, children. By the way, um, if we're almost out of time, right? Yeah. Uh, I would just like to thank you for tolerating me on a show about economics, because in all my, uh, despite the fact that for 25 years I was a columnist with the Wall Street Journal, and despite the fact that I took a, a million uh, undergraduate and graduate courses during my education, I have only taken one course in economics in my whole life. And it wasn't even Economics 101 or the equivalent. Uh, it was a tutorial with Tom Schelling mm. about um, uh, game theory and yeah. nuclear strategy. So I don't know anything about economics, and I think it's very charitable of you to have had me here. <laughs> how, was that, how was that experience with Tom Schelling? Oh, it was great. 
I mean, this is one of the uh, the masters. Yeah, he's a great and creative uh, creative mind. I, I do want to say that you know we're talking about the future reading. Uh, my kids all read. Uh, whether their kids will read, when I say they read, I mean they want to read at night until I make them turn off the light. And I um, I attribute that partially to the fact that my wife and I both read, and partially the fact that we don't let them watch television other than the occasional. Uh, quarter of, of basketball or football a few times uh, uh, in the season. We don't have cable. And uh, so, you know, if, if you're out there listening and you care about reading and contemplation, which is one of the themes, I think, of this book, uh, it is somewhat in your hands. The culture is is very destructive of it right now. But maybe... Um, maybe Individually, yes, you can, you can maintain... Uh, your your integrity in that regard, individually and as families, we can do that. But it's challenging, uh, yeah. and that BlackBerry, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, uh, we're all uh, we're all uh, prone to to find it seductive. Well, my guest today has been Mark Helprin, author of Digital Barbarism. You may or may not agree with his views on copyright or culture, but either way, I urge you to read his novels and short stories, which we'll link to on the web. Copyright may be limited, but the words of Mark Halperin will be, I hope and expect, immortal. Mr. Halperin, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you so much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.